Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Hillary. And this is the Probably Not Lupus podcast, where we discuss medical mysteries and entertain you with curious and uncommon case studies. These are based on mostly true stories collected from real people, history, journals, and fellow doctors. To protect privacy, names, dates, and locations may have been altered. Get ready for your medical mystery bolus. Probably Not Lupus is a show about our favorite medical mysteries. Nothing the hosts say should be taken for medical advice or opinion. We are not experts, nor are we journalists. It's just for fun. So enjoy. Imagine you are a world-class runner. From world junior championships to even Olympic gold medals, your entire life you have trained. Track and Field News voted you the number one woman's 800-meter runner of the year. Your talent and passion is in being the best runner you can be. Then, unintentionally, you become the instigator in an international and contentious debate on gender politics, feminism, and race. This is real life for Castor Semenya. Welcome to episode eight of the Probably Not Lupus podcast. Episode eight. Wow. Yes. I can't believe there's only two more after this to end the season. I know. And I am already excited for episode 10, but I don't want to get too ahead of myself at the same time. I know. We can't stop talking about it. We did also consider taking a break this week because when this is released, it will be on a holiday Monday here in Canada. It is BC day. Uh, but instead, we are still alone in our bedrooms, nerding out over interesting things in medicine. Yeah, we can't stop it. And we thought maybe a break, but then decided not to. Hmm. Yeah. So here we are. We're going to take a break at the end of the season. That seems like a more reasonable time to take a break. <laughs> For sure. Uh, hey, have you been watching the Olympics at all? I have been uh, mm-hmm. here and there. The time change is really throwing me off. So I would not really say I've been watching live events because right. she's not getting up at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, I love watching reruns. And I was in Whistler this past weekend and had a glorious time watching lots of gymnastics, which is my favorite sport to watch. Um, Brilliant always in awe of what these women are capable of doing. Tremendous athletes. They are like amazing. And then obviously I was very in tune with the Simone Biles Mm. situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also had a really great time watching Canada's women's softball take bronze Mm. um, and seeing a girl that I used to play with growing up win and wow that's so exciting for her yeah so and just like I mean it was a sport I played my whole childhood and teen years so how about you let's put a pin in the Olympics because we're going to come back to it so today I think I want to start this episode by setting a goal Uh, I think it's just important to remind yourself what was the goal and the intent with this episode outside of being an interesting medical podcast. And really it was to, for me, at least when I was doing my research, to increase awareness, understanding, and acceptance of non-binary sexual anatomy. I think it's 
really great to acknowledge that not everyone fits into two gender categories. Right. Male or female is not always the way it is. No, that's not the complete tale of sex. So let's just get the definitions out of the way so that you and our listeners understand what I mean when I say certain terms. So for instance, sex is the classification of a person as either male or female. So at birth, infants are assigned a sex, usually based on the appearance of their external anatomy, right? This is what's written on the birth certificate. Uh, This is what we generally probably think of when we're referring to the term, the sex of a person. Um, A person's sex, though, is actually a combination of bodily characteristics. So it's not just what that external genitalia is, but it's also chromosomes, hormones, uh, internal reproductive organs, and secondary sexual characteristics as well. Okay, so that's sex. Now that is different from gender expression. And gender expression is the external manifestations of gender expressed through a person's name, pronouns, clothing, haircut, behavior, voice, and several other body characteristics, I suppose you could say. Um, Now, society really identifies these cues as either masculine or feminine in general, uh, although what we consider to be masculine or feminine, as I'm sure you know, sort of changes over time, and it also varies wildly by culture. The last term I want to define before we get started is the idea of gender identity. And gender identity is a person's internal sense of their own gender. So an example might be for transgender people, their own internal gender identity does not match the sex they were assigned at birth. For some people, their gender identity does not fit neatly into one of these two choices, so male or female. And that's where these terms like non-binary or genderqueer have developed to sort of help describe these people who don't fit into either male or female. And unlike gender expression, gender identity is not visible to others. So just because you feel a certain way inside doesn't mean you necessarily present that outside. Thank you so much for defining those terms for us. And I think it's really important to keep them in mind as we proceed with this episode, but also in your daily life that um, going on, I think we talked about this before with, especially in the Hayes episode to just not make assumptions Mm -hmm. about people and um, you know, judgment is the worst thing you can do and making assumptions, especially about, I mean, obviously someone's size and that type of thing with the previous episode, but also um, gender identity and how they feel and what they would choose to identify and going into pronouns and everything like that as well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, that is that person's decision. That's their feelings. It's not my job to say whether or not I agree with those feelings. And truly, if someone asks to be addressed in a certain way, that's fine with me. I'm happy to oblige whatever makes that person feel the most comfortable. Yeah. Okay. So Back to the 5-alpha reductase deficiency. Now, this is generally a disorder of sexual development for 46 XY individuals, 46 being chromosomes, XY indicating male sex. And the reason it is a disorder of sexual development is because there is an inadequate conversion of testosterone to the more active metabolite dihydrotestosterone, also known as DHT. So this condition is a deficiency in the 5-alpha reductase enzyme, 
which converts testosterone into DHT. Simple? Very simple. And yes, that is what I remember. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Uh, It is also, it happens to be an autosomal recessive condition. It does run in families. I should also mention that we are using the term a disorder in sexual development. In the past in medicine, I think the term ambiguous genitalia was used, and that's now a passe term. Yes, 100%. And that's a really good definition. And we need to keep up with the current terms that are used um, and really making sure we're on top of our inclusive language. Yes, exactly. So this enzyme deficiency was first reported in a pedigree of 24 families. So that's everyone within a family. And they identified 38 affected males. I should also mention that this is an area where there's a lot of interfamilial relationships happening. So these types of autosomal recessive conditions pass more easily through the generations. Now, the Dominican Republic does have a term for these individuals because there was this case cluster, and the term hueva doce was used to describe these individuals. Now, if you're one of our Spanish-speaking listeners, you might notice that sort of the direct translation of that is eggs at noon, uh, which might not really make sense. But if I explain to you that these individuals who have a deficiency in an enzyme that makes DHT and DHT is the main masculinizing hormone prior to puberty, then you would assume that naturally because these patients do not have DHT, they do not masculinize during development. Right. Now, however, after puberty, testosterone then takes over as the main masculinizing hormone, right? That's what we're most familiar with. Testosterone being the stereotypical quote, male hormone. Right. So the slang sort of representation of Oevadoses is actually testicles at noon Mm. or testicles at 12, meaning that these infants are generally assigned female at birth because they did not masculinize in utero during development. But after age 12 or around the age of puberty, when testosterone takes over, they do begin to masculinize, therefore developing testicles at 12. Interesting. Obviously, Weva Dose is a very outdated term. I more just wanted to give you a background on how this case cluster was first identified and that even before we had more gender inclusive language, there were groups of people recognizing that there were people who are not necessarily male or female, but they did fall into this intersex category. That's super interesting. Yeah. Now the prevalence in the general population is unknown. It is a very rare condition. However, patients have been reported from a variety of countries and ethnic backgrounds. So it is not limited to just the Dominican Republic. It was just sort of first discovered there, Okay. So now that we know more about the origin of it, what does it look like? Yeah. Great question. In an XY individual, which is a male sex individual, the external genitalia are often predominantly female at birth. Now I say predominantly because there is like a wide range of lack of virilization that happens. It can be from almost a completely phenotypically or characteristically normal, quote, female genitalia 
to more masculine appearing external genitalia. And not everyone falls in that same spectrum. It's a little different for everyone. Although the degree of virilization of the external genitalia is variable, masculinization of non-genital tissue, so like muscle, for instance, is normal at puberty. So even though they have external genitalia that may present predominantly female come puberty, it will take over as predominantly male. And what about the internal side of things? So the internal side is not going to change. The internal urinogenital tract is considered of male sex. It has an epididymis, a vas deferens, seminal vesicles, ejaculatory ducts, and it all empties into, instead of a penis, a blind ending vagina. How interesting. Yeah. So again, oftentimes these children are born looking completely phenotypically female at birth and they are assigned a female sex at birth and they live their life up until puberty as women. Then at puberty, they begin to masculinize. So they completely change what their external expression of their gender is phenotypically or characteristically those traits that we think as masculine. That's super interesting. Also interesting is A 5-alpha reductase deficiency can also happen in an XX individual or a female sex individual, although they tend to have a gender normative female phenotype, but they have absent armor leg hair and a decrease in armpit and pubic hair. And this is due to the low DHT levels, which it is a hormone in women too, although not as predominant in males. And really these observations suggest that DHT plays an important role in the growth of normal body hair and uh, hirsutism or pathogenic growth of body hair in women, which is interesting. You also might have heard of DHT in the past. If you are a male experiencing male pattern baldness and you were looking Mm. to prevent that, you might take something as well. That's a five alpha reductase reducer, something that lowers that enzyme so that you aren't converting your testosterone to DHT, which might contribute to your hair loss. So those are really great to know about. And how is this diagnosed and how does, how does one discover that this is happening? So sometimes at birth, it is obvious that a disorder of sexual development is present because the genitalia are not fully masculine or fully feminine. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, it's becomes more obvious that something is not as it commonly occurs. However, as I mentioned, a lot of children are also born looking completely female externally. And so there's no reason to do any genetic testing, right? As I mentioned, it was a genetic autosomal recessive condition with genetic inheritance. Mm -hmm. We don't really do genetic testing unless there's a reason to do genetic testing. And if you just have what looks to be a quote, normal female sex baby, then why would you do any tests? So you wouldn't know until puberty when then something would be more obvious. Okay. So you get to puberty, there's something wrong and you go through this testing or, um, you know, the labs and everything involved in it. Mm -hmm. And you come to this conclusion, Mm -hmm. then what happens next? What do you do for treatment? Yeah. Great. Great question. I should also mention uh, when it comes to diagnosis, you can also look at like a serum testosterone level or the amount of testosterone in the blood 
And generally, these people will show an increased ratio of serum testosterone to DHT, obviously because they're not converting that testosterone into DHT. So it's higher in the blood. But again, if you didn't assume anything was wrong, why would you do any tests, right? For sure. Now, if you did notice that there was a disorder of sexual development and you wanted to do treatment, this is complicated. The issue of gender assignment in the newborn in this condition especially is complex because historically about 50% of individuals who are assigned female at birth who had a 5-alpha reductase deficiency have undergone a change or a transition later in life. 50%, that's a large number. Historically, I think there was a lot of pressure, at least in North America, on parents to choose. Yes. If children were born at the time, the term was ambiguous genitalia. If the child had ambiguous genitalia, you were to decide which gender your child would live in and assign that identity at birth. For sure. I feel like I remember learning about that and hearing like stories, like how does a parent pick and feeling the pressure of it for sure. Yeah. And now we are definitely seeing a shift to waiting until at least puberty or until the child's able to receive counseling and make a decision for themselves about their own gender expression and gender identity, regardless of their sex. So because of the inability to accurately predict what someone's gender expression is going to be, and people's guesses being wrong, there is definitely now a move to postpone gender assignment surgery, especially until counseling can happen. For sure. That being said, there are people who argue that you should not wait because gender assigning surgery becomes more challenging or at least presents a different set of challenges after puberty because of the virilization that can happen or the lack of virilization, depending on the condition we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So it's complicated. I understand it's complicated and it's very nuanced and very individual for the person. And also we haven't even talked about the idea of not choosing at all, but we should talk about that. That why do we feel like we have to choose male or female? Why can we not allow these people to live as intersex individuals if that's what they want? And there is no right or wrong. And there's no way to say that this is the best decision for you as a practitioner saying that to a patient who is going through this, you know, we just have to be open and willing to support whatever they choose and provide all options and have that informed consent and not, not pressure, not pressuring or influencing anyone's decision. Definitely. So now we're going to tie it all back together to what we talked about at the beginning uh, with the 2021-2020 Olympic Games. And Hillary is going to talk about an athlete that is related to this. You know what? Really, I thought I was going to talk about one athlete when I researched this, but we're definitely going to talk about a couple because maybe if you've heard, the Olympics has been under fire recently or under praise or under fire, depending on who you ask, I suppose, about the participation of transgendered athletes. So the athlete I want to talk about specifically first is Castor Semenya, 
Maybe you've heard of her. She is a South African middle distance runner, and she is the winner of two Olympic gold medals and three world champions in the women's 800 meters. Amazing. Yes. She first won gold at the world championships in 2009. She went on to win at the 2016 Olympics and in 2017, the world champions where she also won a bronze medal in the 1500 meters. So she is a runner. Incredible. And something I will never be able to do. (laughs) No, if you've ever seen clips of her races, it's truly amazing. She is all the Olympic athletes are truly brilliant, but watching Semenya run is truly inspiring. Now, Semenya is an intersex woman who was assigned female at birth. She has XY chromosomes. And so naturally she is going to have elevated testosterone levels because she actually has 5-alpha reductase enzyme deficiency. Interesting. Yes. So she was assigned female at birth and she has lived her life even through puberty as a female. Now, following her victory in 2009 at the World Champions, she was made to undergo sex testing. After she underwent the sex testing and it was seen that her high testosterone levels were normal in regards to her 5-alpha reductase deficiency, she was cleared to return to competition the following year. But in 2019, new world athletic rules prevented women like Semenya from participating in the 400, 800, and 1500 meter events. In the female classification, unless they took medication to suppress their testosterone levels. Now, these aren't Olympic rules. These are world athletics rules, and they only apply to those three races. So, for example, they don't apply to the 200 meter. That's insane and doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And you're forcing this athlete to take a medication to lower her testosterone levels when that is natural to her. She does, she's not supplementing with testosterone, those are her natural levels. And more importantly, she noted that the hormonal medication, which she had taken from 2010 to 2015, made her feel, quote, constantly sick and caused her abdominal pain. Moreover, she said that the ongoing issue had, quote, destroyed her mentally and physically, end quote. Yeah, I can imagine how hard that must have been for her and how hard it is for an organization to sort of mandate that when it comes to like a drug. It's not like she is using anabolic testosterone. Like, no, this is a naturally occurring thing for her condition. Yes. I'm going to read you another quote from Semenya. I refuse to let world athletics drug me or stop me from being who I am. Excluding female athletes or endangering our health solely because of our natural abilities puts world athletics on the wrong side of history. I will continue to fight for the human rights of female athletes, both on the track and off the track, until we can all run free the way we were born. What an inspiration. And what a strong advocate that I think people with this condition need and is so important for the future of these athletes. Truly. And although she's not competing at the 2021 Olympics, she did file an appeal with the European Court of Human Rights against these restrictions. As she should. I mean, we can do a whole other podcast. Stay tuned, maybe future episode on the emotional and mental toll that these kinds of fights must have on an athlete who is already putting their body through the physical maximum toll it can handle. Yeah. I don't think we can accurately describe... uh, the stress that she must feel and all of the other accompanying emotions. No, this is while fighting this fight. Yeah. But good for her for doing it and following through with it. Cause the, that's what the world needs. Yes. Semenya, we are following your fight and we support you. 
A hundred percent. Now let's talk more about the rules for fair play in the Olympics, because this is actually where I first heard of the controversy this year. Yes. Same. Right. So recently, maybe you saw this in Olympic level weightlifting. So the IOC or the international Olympic committee had recently said that transgender female athletes may participate as females if their testosterone levels test below a certain threshold for 12 months prior to the competition. So a transgendered woman can participate in the female events as long as her testosterone levels are below a certain threshold. Laurel Hubbard, who is an Olympic weightlifter from New Zealand, I believe, she was set to compete and allowed to compete in the Olympics because her testosterone registered below a certain level. Now, there are critics and their complaint speaks about the timing of transitioning. So their argument is that because Hubbard transitioned after puberty, she is still given an unfair advantage as a sex male athlete. Just because her levels of testosterone are lower now doesn't mean she didn't develop as a male athlete earlier in life during puberty. Hmm. Uh, The Olympics have not addressed the issue of transition timing. And this, again, is a much more detailed and nuanced conversation that needs to happen. I've seen things out there like talking about hormone class, like there are weight classes. Uh, It's very complicated. And I want to encourage people to keep reading individual stories and keep seeing how blanket rules don't always fit for individuals, especially when our idea of sex, gender identity, and gender expression have changed and evolved over the years. Super important points. Now, Emma, you mentioned Canadian soccer. My sport, I played soccer my entire life. I played in university in the CIS or in youth sports, I guess now. But um, yeah, I think I know where this is going. Yeah. So Quinn is a Canadian soccer player who came out as non-binary last September. And for Quinn, who uses pronouns like they, their, and them, playing soccer identifies their sex assigned at birth, which is female, but not the gender with which they identify, which is non-binary. So another example of where the female soccer team isn't really an inclusive term for everyone on the team. I agree. And they are such an incredible player that Canada is lucky to have them on the team. 100%. So because people like Semenya and Hubbard And Quinn have been in the news recently. And luckily for us, they have been vocal about their struggles so they can educate people who don't understand the nuance of sex, gender, and gender expression. And the IOC president, Thomas Bach, said during a news conference that, example, Hubbard is qualified to compete under the current rules, but these rules will be under review in the future. The IOC is in an inquiry phase with all different stakeholders to review these rules and finally to come up with some guidelines, which cannot be rules, because this is a question where there is no one size fits all solution. He said it differs from sport to sport. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, it's nice to see that the IOC recognizes that they need to do something, but what has been done doesn't work for everyone and that future work is needed to find some guidelines that work for more people, Mm -hmm. but that it's not a one size for all solution. And they can't just make a blanket rule that applies to everyone. And some of these things do vary on sport. For sure. 
it's complicated. Now, this is all just talk. Obviously, we want to see the actions and we want to see what happens. And again, I want to thank those athletes who have been vocal about how the Olympics or other world-class federations have affected their own mental and emotional health. And they are truly leaders in their own sense for this change and for this action to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really good to see the IOC acknowledge it and understand that the, there needs to be guidelines that need to mm-hmm. be fair for everyone, but mm-hmm. also be inclusive of everyone. And we grew up and history says that there's male sports and there's female sports. However, now, as we talked about earlier, that's not always the case and it's not always binary like that. Correct. And we spoke about our goal at the beginning of the episode being to increase awareness and understanding and acceptance of non-binary sexual anatomy. And really, I hope the takeaway from this entire episode is that trying to fit everyone into two gender categories, like male or female, is nearly impossible in both everyday life and in sports. Absolutely. And I think this was a really important topic to cover. And I really enjoyed doing this episode and learning a little bit more. I enjoyed it too. Well, thank you so much, Hill. That was awesome. And I look forward to next week already. Stay tuned next week where we bring you yet another medical mystery. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Spotify, Google, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and YouTube at Probably Not Lupus. Probably Not Lupus is written, recorded, edited, and produced by us alone in our bedrooms. I love that. <laughs>